Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 32, The Komnenian Restoration. So, first off today, as usual, I've got to thank our new Patreon subscribers. There's Nikolai Ivanov and what appears to be a grumpy cat named VLA. Now, honestly, I'm delighted to know that I'm hitting that key grumpy cat demographic. It's a big, important demographic for us podcasters, kind of like that famous 18 to 35 amongst TV folks. So, thanks both of you really a lot, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be in touch soon. So, we left off last time with the death of Alexios Komnenos, undoubtedly one of the most successful emperors the Byzantines had seen in a very long time. The Crusades had also set up the Kingdom of Jerusalem, as well as a few other Crusader states along the Mediterranean coast. The Normans had tried to invade the Balkans again, but were repulsed again, and Alexios had worked hard to suppress Bogomil and Polish and heresies in the Balkans. Now, his son, John II Komnenos, who I'll just call John, is taking the throne. So who was this man? Like his father, he was well-versed in military affairs, but he was also very pious. He ate simply, shunned luxury, and was just as serious as his father about crushing religious heresies. He was charitable and kind, though He tended to be a little less involved in religious matters. He left most of those up to the patriarch. Because as we'll see, he was generally very, very busy. By the time he took the throne, he'd been co-ruler with his father for a whole 26 years. So John was hardly an amateur. Yet, he barely managed to secure the throne over his mother's preferred choice, his brother-in-law. Ouch, that's, uh, that's got to hurt. Someone has some mother issues there. But anyways, John actually had to skip his father's funeral in order to ensure that his grip on power stayed strong during the transition. Like he, he couldn't be away from the palace long enough to attend the funeral because he was afraid of what kind of a coup or, or some other shenanigans that could happen there. Also, remember that when Alexius died, he'd been attacking the Seljuk Turks. Well, His son was intent on continuing that policy and further reinforcing his position in Anatolia. So from 1019 to 1021, sorry, 1119 to 1121, for some reason I'm very tempted to write 10 instead of 11 for all these dates, so bear with me while we get through the century. So in from 1019 to 1119 to 1121, he picks up this conflict and manages to defeat the Seljuks, kind of further stabilizing the Byzantine position in the region. But just at that moment, just when you thought they were finally done, they arrive. Oh yes, it's our old favorites. They're back again like zombies rising out of the grave. It's the Pechenegs. Now remember, many Pechenegs had settled in what's now Byzantine territory, and they were really fading away as a people. But some of them lived up north, north of the Danube of the Carpathians, uh, in kind of what's now Ukraine. Now, this was a source 
of a group that crossed the Danube into Byzantine-controlled and Bulgarian lands, intent on doing a bit of raiding, you know, for old times' sake. In fact, some Byzantines actually speculate that the Prince of Kiev had organized the attack. Now, you'll notice we haven't really heard much from the, the Rus up there in what's now Ukraine for quite a while, but you know, apparently this is possibly them taking a little pot shot at the Byzantines. So John had to move quickly. He moved a bulk of his forces from Anatolia back up into the Balkans. While this was happening, the Pechenegs managed to cross the Balkan mountains. You remember, uh, there's a previous Byzantine policy to generally make sure that area between the Balkan mountains and the, the, the Danube didn't really have anything particularly good for the Pechenegs to raid, to both discourage raids and to hopefully use those Balkan mountains as a line of defense. Well, in this case, it didn't really work. They got through. The Pechenig and Byzantine forces then met near the modern city of Starozagora in Thrace. So you can take a peek at a map and find Starozagora. John surprisingly offered the Pechenig chieftain a very nice treaty instead of initially attacking them. Well, at least he did for a moment, because actually that treaty was a trick. It was a chance for the Byzantines to catch the Pechenigs off guard and mount a full attack, which they did. They focused on the Pechenig camp, a sort of circle of wagons. Now think about what the cowboys do in the old American Western movies when they're attacked by Native Americans or settlers, right? You round up all the wagons and you use them as sort of a barricade behind which you can fight. And, and for the Pechenegs, you know, they're horse warriors, so they're out there being very mobile. But any camp followers on, any stuff they've stolen, all their valuables really are inside this critical little wagon fort. Okay, so they had this circle of wagons. Now, for the Pechenegs inside of it, this really limited their ability to use their mobility as horse archers to their advantage. But still, they defended this camp with zeal. The battle went back and forth. It seemed to be teetering on a knife's edge for much of the day, with John himself even taking an arrow to the leg. That is, until John got fed up and decided to call in the Imperial Varangian Guard. Their massive double-handed axes made quick work of the wagons. You can picture these huge Viking men, mostly from the English Isles, uh, British Isles rather, sort of swinging these axes above their heads and smashing through these wagons, cutting through the wood. They, so once they made through their way through this, uh, this barrier, they got right into this Pechenig camp. And at this point, it was basically all over. The Byzantines could pour in, take out this core of the Pechenig force, and they were utterly defeated. Pretty much every Pechenig that was there was either killed or taken prisoner and forced to serve in the Byzantine army. Once again, the collapse of the Pechenigs as a people and a fighting force was abundantly clear. They would never again mount a raid like this into Byzantine territory, meaning that centuries of enduring bands of Pechenigs crossing the Danube and pillaging Bulgarian lands and Byzantine lands were now over. There's no doubt this came as a relief to those populations and meant that Bulgarian lands could now enter an even more peaceful and stable period. Of course, what that would mean for those Bulgarian lands, we'll have to see. In addition to dealing with the Pechenegs, shortly after coming to power, John decided to ditch his father's treaty with Venice. Now, this was the treaty that had allowed his father to easily defeat Bohemond and the Normans so recently. Now, the reason he decided to do this was eh, because of some dispute over the treatment of a member of the royal family, but the reason is not that important. The result was basically a brief war. 
that saw the Venetians, uh, Venetians attacking many Byzantine islands, which Alexios had so recently recaptured. Still, the Byzantines were heavily reliant on the Venetians for their naval power, and so this policy really couldn't hold on for long. That war ended within a year, and the previous treaty, which had been signed in 1082, was restored. Really, it wasn't a big loss for John, but it actually didn't do it didn't do a lot of wonders for the Byzantine-Venetian relationship. It made the two a bit skeptical of each other. So, all this brings us down to 1122. The Byzantine, the the deal with the the war with the Venetians is over. The Pechenegs have been defeated. Um, the Seljuks have been defeated. So. Everything seems great, right? John's done. He defeated all the enemies. Ah, but you'll remember both in Byzantine and in Bulgarian history, you never, ever defeat all the enemies. There's always someone else. So, for now, there are more enemies, but still the Empire does go into about five years of peace around this time. There are more enemies, but they'll, they're content to wait, let's say. But still, there's one group that's been quiet for a long time, and so... Well, you could say it's about time trouble brewed on that particular frontier. Now it was time for the Hungarians to stir up trouble in the Balkans. Now at this point, the Byzantine Empire extended up to around where Belgrade is today. One town which sat on the Danube kind of started all these problems along. See, Hungarian traders crossed the river at this town, this little fortress, to trade with the Byzantines. But... For reasons really not explained well by contemporary chronicles, the citizens of this town decided to attack the Hungarian traders and just generally treat them pretty awfully. King Stephen II of Hungary was really not amused. This called for war. So, during the summer of 1127, Stephen invaded the empire and attacked the modern cities of Belgrade, Nish, the border town which started all this, and continued on raiding around Serdica, modern Sofia, where I live now, and got all the way as far south as Philippopolis, modern Plovdiv. Okay, but there is actually something I left out in that little story. You see, it wasn't only that Stephen II was mad about the attacks on these traitors. See, in 1104, 23 years before all this began, King Stephen II of Hungary's niece Irene married John. Now, the idea was to keep a good relationship between the Byzantines and the Hungarians through this very important dynastic marriage. Only problem was that this also gave the Byzantines a very strong stake in Hungarian dynastic politics. Now, this led John to taking in a man named Almos. Now, who this guy apparently had tried to take the Hungarian throne. He failed. He was blinded. But he was a relative through marriage of John, and so John took him in. Now, needless to say, this did not make Stephen happy. So, it's actually likely that this attack was also in part uh, about the traitors, but also Stephen getting revenge on his brother or his uh, what nephew-in-law taking the throne or taking in this man who tried to take the throne from him. But in any case, John, as you can imagine, was not about to take this raid lying down. So, he gathered an army and he headed for the Hungarian frontier. The two forces met just west of the modern city of Novi Sad, in yet another Danubian fortress just next to the modern Serbian-Croatian border. Now, there was apparently some fighting between uh, before this uh, before this battle, but we really don't know much about it. So that's where they meet. The Hungarians were led by a commander, not by their king because Stephen was sick, but the Hungarians were pretty ready for fight for a fight. They dug in along the Danube, with the Byzantines on the opposite bank. 
Now, this could turn into nothing because even today, crossing a river under fire is an unbelievably difficult military maneuver, one of the most difficult ones you can do. So John needed some help. He started by sending a mercenary force farther up the Danube to try to draw some of the Hungarian forces away. It worked. The Hungarians split their forces. Then, once they had an opening, the Byzantines crossed the river in force. This was possible because the Byzantine Imperial Navy operated on the Danube. Now, you'll recall this navy had been used on the Danube many times against the Bulgarians to ferry troops all over the place. So, on these naval ships, you had archers and bolts firing machines or bolt firing machines peppering the Hungarians with missiles to cover the assault of the ground troops. It went well enough that the Byzantine cavalry managed to land and then mount a devastating assault on the Hungarians with their lances. The Hungarian forces were scattered, and many more subsequently died when a bridge they were using to flee over collapsed. It was a disaster for the Hungarians, and allowed the Byzantines to take nearby fortresses full of money and supplies. Now, as a result, much of the region of northern Serbia that we now call the Vojvodina was in Byzantine hands. With the Hungarians put down, John turned to their Serbian allies, who you'll recall had spent much of the last few decades in the background, annoyed, annoying the Byzantines by supporting their enemies, but also not really engaging in direct attacks, all while technically being a Byzantine protectorate. Now, Alexios had really never had time to deal with them, but things had changed, and his son thought it was time to show the Serbs what their place was. So, John engaged in a raid, and it went really well. Uh, the Byzantines took many prisoners and actually resettled them in Anatolia to sort of build up the population that uh, was ready for military service so they could be better used against the Seljuks. But in any case, the Serbs had now been put into their place and were firmly under Byzantine control yet again. Now, within a year or two, the Hungarian king had to put down two revolts against him, but was still, I guess, fierce enough to continue attacking the Byzantines. There was another war, and the Hungarians were defeated again, further reinforcing Byzantine control over Belgrade, the adjacent Zemun uh, region, the region of Sirmia, and a lot of fortresses along the border. Following these wars, Hungarian relations ironically improved because now the border was secure and the question as to whether or not the Hungarians might uh, kind of expand south to uh, south was answered, right? So it's, it's one of these kind of funny things, right? When you and your neighbor are, you know, thinking, are we going to fight? Are we not going to fight? Are, is this territory yours? Is this territory mine? It's easy to be really mad at each other. But once everything's resolved and it's crystal clear who gets what, eh, there's not so many reasons to fight. Now, while all this had been happening, the Seljuks had actually been taking advantage of John's preoccupation in the Balkans to slowly take bits of territory from his newly acquired Anatolian territories. For a time, they had cut off the vital land route to the Crusader states, so John had to kind of get down there, retake the territory, and reopen this important land route. But still, the Seljuks were being a real pain. By 1130, though, well, let's say John was ready to turn his full attention towards the Seljuks. So he was done in the Balkans, he was back to Anatolia. In particular, he had his eye on the Danishmend dynasty. Now this was a group of, the same group of Seljuks that had captured Bohemund and were based in central Anatolia. John's campaigns 
Well, they went well. They were well executed, and he just took fortress after fortress, occupying territory lost to the Byzantines since the Battle of Manzikert. His success, however, well, it was tough to make it stick. The Seljuk dynasties were always right there, ready to take back those territories the moment the emperor and his army were safely back in Constantinople. So the Byzantines were winning battles, right? They were taking territory, but in the end, it was too hard to maintain a strong presence to really discourage the Seljuks from raiding. They were fighting a losing battle. Because, of course, John had things to pay attention to elsewhere. He also wanted to reassert some control over those crusader states, and in particular, Antioch. Now remember, Antioch was one of the largest, most important cities in the entire region. It was very, very prestigious and could bring a bit of money if you controlled it. So, John retook more territory along the southern coast of Anatolia leading up to Syria, which was in this territory he took was controlled by the Armenian kingdom of Cilicia. So, he attacked that kingdom, took their territory, captured their royal family, and, well, all was well, right? John's victorious Byzantine army soon was at the gates uh, was at the gates of the leaders of Antioch and Edessa and Tripoli. So all these three crusader states saw his successful army right there, ready to invade, and they all agreed to submit to him around 1137. As a result, John now had their forces at his side, so he could lead their combined armies deeper into Syria. So they did that. They invaded Muslim-occupied Syrian territories. Now, they failed to take Aleppo, uh, but they did manage to take many other important cities. But all was not well. Infighting continued against the, amongst the Crusader princes, and despite John's frenetic energy, he just could not get them to reunite against their religious foes. So, eventually, John just gave up. I mean, the Crusaders were like a bunch of kids. They were constantly fighting with each other. It was just such a pain to get them to focus on something and to not constantly stab each other in the back. So, John turned his attention elsewhere. Namely, combating a Seljuk raid on the territory he had just taken from the Armenians and putting together a German alliance to attack the Normans in Sicily in 1136. Then that was also a nice bit of revenge against those darn Normans who just kept invading the Balkans. By 1140, John was back to attacking the Denishmans again, the Seljuk tribe, taking lands on the northern Black Sea up to the basically where the modern border with Georgia is. Now, John really was relentless. I mean, he reminds me of a bit of Simeon, but I guess winning more battles. Like He just keeps going and going and going. He... He then, you know, in 1042, he, he goes back to Syria. He makes more assaults against Muslim forces there and plans to take full control of Antioch and take his army on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Now, this makes sense. I mean, he's tired of dealing with the Crusader state, so if he can take control, that's a lot better. And, you know, taking his army on pilgrimage to Jerusalem is a great PR move. But you can probably imagine the idea of a very strong and very successful Byzantine army at his gates terrified King Fulk of Jerusalem, the crusader king at the time. He was afraid that John would use that army to take over his kingdom. So King Fulk politely suggested that maybe John just bring out a small contingent of soldiers and that that would be sufficient. Uh, the excuse he used was that, well, the, the, the land around Jerusalem, it's not so fertile. You can't support a lot of troops. It'll be a lot easier to feed a small group of soldiers. But in the end, it didn't matter. In 1142, John besieged Antioch and demanded they submit to Byzantine rule. 
But the rulers of Antioch delayed and delayed and delayed until changing weather forced John to head back to Cilicia on the southern uh, coast of Anatolia to kind of hang out for the winter. While there, John was enjoying his time. He was hunting boar, where he cut his hand with a poisoned arrow, then ignored the wound and died from infection. So, just like that, in 1143, John, who was looking like he might be even more successful than his father, poof, he's gone. Another reminder of just how different this time is, right? Nowadays, you wouldn't imagine you kind of cut your hand and that within, uh, I don't know, a few days, a few weeks, you're dead. But these are the Middle Ages and that happens. But still, John had been pretty successful. He'd retaken territories, defeated nearly every major enemy the Byzantines had, and left a real legacy as one of the most successful emperors of what kind of historians call the Komnenian Restoration. So we've seen Alexios, now we see John, and then we'll see his successor. So we can tell like these, this is a very, very successful cluster of emperors. The Byzantines are lucky. And this is one of the reasons why the Bulgarians have been very quiet, right? This is, they, they could probably see, this is not the time to lead an uprising against the Byzantine Empire. The Byzantine Empire is doing fantastic. So John's dead. He's far from Constantinople. So big shock. The question of succession is suddenly at the forefront. Now, John had chosen his youngest son, Manuel, to succeed him instead of his older son, Isaac. But by dying so far from Constantinople with Manuel by his side, well, this meant that Isaac was in the palace ready to take the throne if he wanted it. But luckily for Manuel, one of his most trusted advisors managed to rush out and get to Constantinople before news of the emperor's death arrived. This trusted confidant then arrested Isaac and made sure everyone there supported Manuel by the time he got back. He's a good, good friend. This guy got his job done. So the new emperor arrived shortly after with a very secure throne. And, well, it should come as no surprise that trouble began brewing for him almost immediately, right? Uh, you got your succession uh, squared away, but there's just so many enemies at the gates. There's no way they're going to wait for you to kind of chill out. So this time it was in the Crusader states again. In 1144, the Prince of Antioch demanded the Byzantines hand over the recently captured Sicilian region along the Mediterranean Sea just above Antioch. Now, you can probably imagine Manuel's having none of this. It's like, I'm not just going to give you this territory I conquered. Like, why would I do that? But before Manuel could really respond, the situation in the region changed very quickly and very dramatically. A new jihad had suddenly swept into the region and overtook the county of Edessa, another crusader state to the northeast of Antioch. So suddenly Antioch's position was looking very different. Its prince Raymond realized that he actually went from feeling pretty confident to desperately needing help. And of course, the only place that help could possibly come from was Byzantium. Oh, the irony, right? Within months of demanding territory from the Byzantines, Raymond is declaring his allegiance to them and in exchange for them helping him against these Muslim attacks. But before Manuel is going to assault Syria, he has problems closer to home. Because the Seljuks are still occupying much of central Anatolia, surrounding on three sides, or surrounded on three sides rather, by Byzantine territory. A situation there had them repeatedly leading raids on Byzantine settlements. And it was a situation Manuel just couldn't afford to ignore any longer. So, 
well, Raymond and the Crusader states and the, the Jihad, well, they're going to have to wait. The Seljuks are Manuel's first priority. So he led an invasion. The Byzantines managed to defeat the Turks and take many fortified settlements, but the capital of Konya was just too well fortified to even attempt an assault upon. Everything was going fine, but then a letter from the West arrived. So, okay, Manuel's probably feeling like, I, I couldn't take Konya, but I took a bunch of settlements. I basically won the war. And now this. He opens a letter, and it's from the King of France, Louis VII. It states that he intends to assemble an army to relieve the Crusader states. That's right, the Second Crusade is underway. Now, we know there's going to be a bunch of Crusades, but... You know, Manuel didn't really know this, and it must have come as, uh, well, not exactly a welcome surprise. As you recall, the Byzantines did not really care for these crusaders. They didn't trust them. They didn't like them. They were weirdo, strange, kind of foreign, weird types of Christians from the West who seemed to cause nothing but trouble. Now, you may have think that Manuel, okay, you may have think maybe Manuel was excited to have help on the way, but uh, no, not at all. So, Essentially, it meant that what this meant was that Manuel had to turn his attention away from attacking the Seljuks, right? He had been leading this uh, war against Seljuks, but now he knew that some crusader armies were coming to his Balkan territories and could cause any kinds of trouble. So, ironically enough, you know, the, the crusaders declare that they're going to come down and help out the crusader states. But the direct result is that Manuel, instead of helping the crusader states, has to turn around and go to the Balkans to deal with the crusader armies on their way. So the armies who come in, their leaders are forced to take oaths that, the, that they're not going to do any harm to the Byzantine Empire. But, well, as the famous presidential quote from the U.S. says, trust but verify, right? These two armies, one French and one German, may have made this pledge, but the Byzantines weren't about to just trust them. So a Byzantine force traveled along with them. Now, the first army that came through was the Germans. And as they traveled along, a small battle actually broke out between elements of each force near Adrianople. So that tells you how bad these relations were, that they actually fought a small battle. The German contingent that led the, you know, the, the German forces in this battle was none other than the very famous Frederick Barbarossa. Yes, if that sounds familiar, Barbarossa, that's the one Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union was named after. Yes, that Frederick Barbarossa. You can probably guess he's going to reappear in our story. So... That battle ends, the Byzantines win, and everyone kind of pretends like it didn't happen and moves right along. Then the Crusaders take some really serious losses in a flash flood. And by the time they reach Constantinople, Manuel was really just trying to get them across the Bosphorus, as his predecessors were. But those Crusaders, they were hungry, they were in a foul mood, and they decided to pillage several of the city's suburbs. Now something a bit odd happens, because Manuel instructed two generals to essentially provoke a portion of the German Crusader army to attack them. And, well, shouldn't come as a surprise, it worked. The undisciplined Germans actually attacked the Byzantine force. And as a Byzantine chronicler put it, quote, the Byzantines scientifically resisted and slew them, end quote. Now, now to be clear, uh, the German king Conrad, he wasn't actually even around for this. He was unaware of the battle until after it happened. He was away with another section of his army. It goes to show you just how disorganized these things were. But it was basically a Byzantine slaughter. The loss actually convinced Conrad that he had to get to the Asian shore quickly before more of these kinds of fights broke out. 
And that was perfect for Manuel because what his greatest fear was at the time was that the French Crusader army that was on its way was going to arrive and those two forces together would attack Constantinople. So he ferried the Germans across and they were safely out of his hair. In fact, Manuel was even willing to offer Conrad an alliance, but he refused and just moved towards central Anatolia without any Byzantine help. As a result, by the time his army actually met the Seljuks, they were in shambles. They'd been split into two divisions and just didn't know what to do with the terrain. At the Second Battle of Dorylaeum in 1147, these Germans were utterly routed by the Seljuks. And as a result, that 20,000-man force uh, limped into Nicaea to meet up with the French army. But, oh, sorry. As a result, by the time his army met the Seljuks, they were in shambles. They had been split into two divisions. They didn't really know how to handle the terrain there. And at the Second Battle of Dorylaeum in 1147, they were utterly routed by the Seljuks. As a result, instead of that 20,000-man army that had arrived initially, a force of just around 2,000 soldiers met the French army in Nicaea. Now, the French army, for its part, also followed a land route to Constantinople, but things were a bit more peaceful for them. Apart from some conflict with the Hungarians over an enemy of the king that had been allowed to join the crusade, blah, 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 the Hungarians get mad over a lot of things, Louis was more or less welcomed in Constantinople, wined and dined, and, well, he got his forces to restrain from being more brutal with the Byzantines as the Germans had been. And just at the moment these two crusading armies met, uh, the French and the Germans, something else was actually happening, which quickly had to wrench the attention of Manuel away from the threat he saw in these crusaders. So you're probably wondering, what, what on earth could draw his attention? It wasn't the Seljuks or the Crusader states, because that would just turn more of his attention to the Second Crusade. It probably wasn't the Hungarians, so who's causing all the trouble? Not the Bulgarians, you were probably hoping that, but it's the Normans. The Normans are at it again. From his base in Sicily, their king, Roger II, was taking this moment to attack the Byzantine Empire yet again. Next time, we're going to see what happens when all these armies make their moves. Will the Second Crusade succeed? Will the Normans finally mount a successful invasion of the Balkans? Will the Serbs, Hungarians, and Bulgarians stay quiet through it all? Well, you'll just have to wait for 2017 to find out. So, thanks everyone. It has been an amazing year. This episode, as always, was written by me, Eric Halsey, and produced by Lance Nelson, with some research help from Stanimir Bogdanov. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Be sure to like us on Facebook, leave us a review on iTunes, all that good stuff. Listen to us on SoundCloud. Check out the Bulgaria Now podcast created by Lance Nelson with me jumping into co-hosts on occasion. Really, if you want to live in Bulgaria or are interested in what's happening there, it's a great resource. So, until next year, uspech or good luck.